Hello, and welcome to the Sleep Science Podcast. I'm Penny Lewis, a neuroscientist specializing in sleep and memory and the presenter of this show. In the podcast, we talk about all things related to sleep, from dreaming and sleepwalking to what sleep does for our brain and our body and how we can get more out of our sleep. Please see our podcast webpage for details. This is the last episode of our second season, and we're celebrating by doing a special Q&A session. Listeners have sent in a bundle of interesting sleep questions and members of the NAPS Lab, that's my sleep research team here at Cardiff University in the UK, are going to answer them. We recorded this at a regular lab meeting, so you'll not only get some interesting sleep info, but also a feel for who's on our team and what they do. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sleep Science Podcast. This is our very special end of season question and answer session. We have most of the lab members here with us on Zoom, and we're going to start by getting them all to introduce themselves. Hello, my name is Katerina. I'm a PhD student, and my research topic focuses on REM behavior disorder, which is a REM sleep parasomnia. The aim of my PhD research project is to explore neuropsychological and electrophysiological biomarkers for the prediction of phenoconversion to synucleinopathies in these patients, and also to explain their daytime functioning, in particular, the emotional functioning. I'm Megan, and I'm a PhD student in NAPS Lab, and I am focusing on sleep and creativity. Hi, I'm Holly. I was in the last Q&A, if anyone remembers me, and I'm a PhD student. I've just submitted my thesis for the NAPS Lab, and my thesis focuses on how we can use sound to learn more about memory and sleep and try and improve it. Hi, everyone. I'm Simon, a third-year PhD student, and I'm specialized in sleep and creativity in a sense that I'm focusing on how sleep can foster novelty, guessing, or issues solving. And the second objective of my PhD is to investigate how metacognition can foster sleep benefits. Hello, everyone. I'm Viviana Greco. I'm a third-year PhD student in the NAPS lab, and I'm currently working and particularly interested in sleep and emotional memories. Greetings. My name is Thomas Foldis. I'm a third-year PhD student, and I'm trying to create a, a mathematical model of what could be happening during sleep that helps us improve our memories. Hi, everyone. My name is Martina. I'm a last-year PhD student in the NAPS lab. I'm particularly interested in the long-term effects of memory activation during sleep, as well as the neuroplasticity that underpins that. Hello, I'm Bella. I'm one of the interns at the NAPS lab, and I'm focusing on closed-loop stimulation and how that can affect behavioural tasks before and after sleep. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone. So now that everyone's been introduced, what we're going to do is I'm going to hand over to Bella, and she's going to emcee for the rest of the episode and she's going to ask all the questions and we're going to do our best to answer them. So take it away, Bella. Thank you, Penny. So over the last couple of weeks, I've collected a number of very interesting questions from the public and these touch on a range of different topics related to sleep. My first question is for Megan and the question is, what is it in general anaesthetic that completely prevents a patient from waking up mid-surgery? Is this a similar state to being in a deep sleep or is this different entirely? So, yeah, there are a number of different drugs which can be used for general anaesthetic. 
under the classification of hypnotics. And these are used to induce unconsciousness in general anesthesia with a combination of these hypnotic agents, along with inhalation agents, opioids, muscle relaxants, and cardiovascular drugs, all being important to maintain general anesthesia. And these drugs efficiently inactivate large regions of the brain by contributing to unconsciousness by acting on a receptor in the brain called the GABA-A receptor. And to answer the second part of this question, the unconscious state induced by general anesthesia is not the same as deep sleep. And it's actually a reversible drug-induced coma that includes specific behavioral and physiological states, including unconsciousness, amnesia, analgesia, and akinesia, or absence of movement. The physiological aspects highlight the differences between deep sleep and general anesthesia, with a key difference being that brainstem activity is maintained in sleep, which is responsible for respiratory and cardiovascular function, but this is not maintained in general anaesthesia. Thank you, Megan. So my next question is for Holly, and that is, can having daytime naps actually improve your memory? The short answer is yes. Sleep and memory is the primary focus of what we work on here at NAPS. And the slightly longer answer is it really depends on how long your nap is. So when we sleep at night, we generally hopefully sleep for around sort of six, seven, eight hours. And during that time, we go through a couple of different sleep stages. So REM sleep associated with dreaming and a deeper non-REM sleep. And we know that both of these stages are quite important for different kinds of memory. So the problem is if we have a 20 minute nap in the afternoon and we only get into the lightest stages of sleep, then we're probably not going to reap the benefits that we might see in a long night of sleep from those from that short period of sleep. So generally, yes, a nap in the afternoon would improve your memory, but only if it's long enough for you to go through the different stages of sleep that we know are important for memory. Brilliant. Thank you, Holly. My next question is for Penny, and that is, can a good sleep schedule help you lose weight? Okay, so this is, I think, a really interesting and important question. And I think it's complicated in terms of whether it can actually help you lose weight. But what we know is that if you have a good sleep schedule, then you probably will sleep better. So uh, circadian rhythms are really important in our sleep. And if you go to sleep at the same time and wake up at the same time every day, you're normally going to get a better night of sleep. And we also know that there's a really strong link between sleep deprivation and poor fragmented sleep and obesity. So sleep deprivation is linked to changes in some of the peripheral hormones like leptin, for instance, down-regulated if you're sleep-deprived. Leptin is a hormone that inhibits your appetite. So if you reduce leptin levels, then you're more likely to be more hungry. And at the same time, another hormone called ghrelin, which actually stimulates appetite, is up-regulated if you're sleep-deprived. So that's also going to make you more hungry. So it's kind of a double whammy. Um, Leptin down, ghrelin up equals you're going to be more hungry. You want to eat more. And not only do you want to eat more, but you want to go for those high calorie carbs and fatty foods. So that is 
probably part of the reason why sleep deprivation is linked to obesity. So while it's not entirely clear whether just improving your sleep schedule could help you lose weight, which was the original question, it is clear that there's a really strong link between poor sleep and obesity. So certainly, I would say it's a good idea to improve your sleep and see if that does help. Brilliant. Thank you, Penny. So my next question is for Katerina. And that is, why do people tend to have a deeper sleep after drinking alcohol? Alcohol has sedative properties. It's metabolized relatively quickly and usually in the first part of the night. So sleep is affected differently during the night. In fact, we might have an initial period of the night when alcohol levels are supposed to be still high and the second part of the night when alcohol should be already eliminated. To understand the role of alcohol on sleep, we need to know that sleep includes distinct stages. No rapid eye movement, which includes three substages once you're free, corresponding to increasing depth of sleep. Moreover, we have rapid eye movement sleep, so-called because our eyes move rapidly. So, the sedative effect of the alcohol leads initially to a reduction in the time a person falls asleep and increasing in the time spent in deep sleep stages 2 and 3 and finally it leads to a delay and a decreasing of REM sleep. This shortened period to fall asleep is often perceived as beneficial. Actually, we have a deeper sleep after drinking alcohol in the first part of the night. But this is tricky because in the second part of the night, when blood alcohol concentrations decline, we have a compensatory effects. So we assist to some rebound effects. These include a fragmentation of our sleep with consequently many wake periods, even if of many of them we are not aware and also include longer REM stages and a reduction of deep sleep, which means a reduction in sleep quality and sleep quantity. The reason why alcohol leads to an initial increasing of deeper sleep stages is due to its link with the inhibitory mechanism. We have to know that the brain maintains neurochemical balance through inhibitory and excitatory neurotransmitters. The main inhibitory neurotransmitter is GABA, which acts through the GABA neuroreceptor. And alcohol enhances the effect of GABA neurotransmitter on GABA neuroreceptor. For this reason, an acute alcohol intoxication reinforces the neuronal inhibition. And this inhibition intensifies the mechanism triggering deep non-REM sleep. But now we know that despite of these first sedative effects promoting sleep, it also disrupts the normal sleep architecture, consequently reducing sleep quality. Thank you, Katerina. So my next question is for Simon. And the question is, can a lack of sleep really impact the way your brain works long term? Uh, so thanks for the question. That's a very good question. And I could say, spoiler, that the response is definitely yes. It is quite accepted that sleep has an impact of Alzheimer. But here, some studies revealed that during sleep, we tend to produce and foster the activation of a protein that is called the aquaporin-4. 
this protein is involved in the clearance system of some Alzheimer's-associated proteins that are the beta amyloid and the accumulation of tau protein. One of the main hypotheses is the amyloid cascade hypothesis sustaining that yeah, the accumulation of these two proteins are involved in Alzheimer occurrence. And here, what we need to understand is that during sleep, this aquaporin-4 acts by some kind of vasoconstriction of vessels and arterias and pumping the brain fluid and so on, improving the clearance system. So yes, the less you sleep, the less your clean clearance system is efficient. And yeah, the more you foster Alzheimer's occurrence. Thank you, Simon. So my next question is another one for Megan, and that is, why do children with ASD struggle to fall asleep, maintain sleep? Yes, so many children with ASD do struggle to fall asleep and maintain sleep. And estimates range from about 60 to 86% of children struggle with this. And there are a number of theories on why this occurs. And it's most likely that they all contribute probably to a different extent in different individuals. So first of all, altered REM sleep has been observed in children with ASD, with brainwave activity and eye movements observed being similar to that seen in premature and much younger infants. And also altered brainwave organisation with activity that's usually seen in non-REM sleep actually being observed in REM sleep, suggesting that the sleep stages might not be very well differentiated and there's mature, immature neuronal differentiation. And also circadian rhythms, which are important for regulating the sleep-weight cycle, may be disrupted in ASD. So there are a number of genes that regulate circadian rhythms and abnormalities in these genes have been associated with ASD. And also a particular hormone called melatonin, which is very important for circadian rhythms, has been identified at lower levels in ASD, as well as changes to the melatonin receptor sites. And this may also delay sleep onset and increase nighttime wakening. And there's also sensory hyperreactivity, which has been well characterized in ASD. And this may cause these children to overreact to external stimuli, making it difficult for them to fall or stay asleep. And that sort of sums up some of the intrinsic mechanisms But there are also a number of extrinsic causes of sleep difficulty in ASD, which can also affect typically developing children. And these do tend to be more common. And these are referred to as behavioral insomnias of childhood. And these can include things like the child's dependency on a specific stimulation or person or objects or a specific setting turning to sleep. This is referred to as the sleep onset association type, or it could be um, bedtime stalling or refusal behaviours, which is referred to as the limit setting type, where caregivers aren't able to set a limit and the limit just gets sort of like thrown out the way because the child is refusing to go to bed, for example. 
And these can often escalate sort of night on night to become very disruptive and lead to very difficult sleep problems for the child. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. My next question is for Holly. And this is how does loud snoring or sleep talking wake up other people but not manage to wake up the person themselves? So this is really interesting. I think snoring is something that we don't talk about a lot in sleep science, but it's something that's really, really prevalent. Around 25 to 40% of people in the UK snore. I don't know anyone who can't think of a night that they've been disrupted by somebody else in their family snoring, even to the point where the word sleep and the word snoring are thought to originate from the same ancient Greek word. So they're so linked together that these things are really, really common. So one of the things I would say is that often snorers do wake themselves up. So we've heard mention of sleep apnea, which is a good example of where people have the main symptom is really bad snoring. And it tends to be people up, although it's not actually the noise of the snoring that's waking someone up. It's the cause of the snoring, which is compression of the airwaves. So the compression of the airwave is causing the snoring and then the brain realizes uh, that they're not getting enough oxygen. And so they wake up. Then they tend to fall asleep really quickly, which also I think is likely to occur in a lot of people who might wake themselves up from the noise of snoring. So they wake up, the noise stops, the brain starts getting enough oxygen in the case of apnea and they fall asleep again. And this happens so quickly that they don't realize when they wake up that they woke up during the night. So it's it's something that completely passes you by. Whereas if you're co-sleeping with someone who's snoring really loud and that wakes you up, you wake up and this noise continues because you're not the one doing the snoring. And so you're going to be awake for longer and you're going to notice that you're awake. I think another reason is, so when we're asleep, we're aware of lots of what's going on in our environment because that's a good way of making sure that there's no danger in our environment. So sound is quite a good way of monitoring for danger. And so if we hear a loud noise, like someone stands at all, we're going to wake up. Whereas if we ourselves are the one making the noise, our brain already knows that it's not a danger to us. And it's a constant noise. It's not particularly surprising. Whereas if the person we're co-sleeping with is making a noise or somebody else in the house, then again, it's got that slightly more threatening tone to it. We don't know what it is. We might wake up. I think a lot of people might find this, might wake up and you go, oh, so they're snoring again. And then you quite quickly go back to sleep because rationally, you know, it's not something that's to be concerning. I think the same with sleep talking. It's been shown to happen in both this REM and non-REM stages, sometimes associated to dreaming, sometimes not. Sometimes it's associated with being more awake again. So there's the potential that the person doing the sleep talking is waking up briefly and falling back asleep. But again, these are such brief arousal periods, they're not likely to notice. You're more likely to notice if it's a person that you're co-sleeping with is making these noises. Brilliant. Thank you, Holly. So my next question is for Viviana, and that is, how does drinking lots of caffeinated drinks affect our sleep-wake cycle? So caffeine might interfere with the quality of sleep, but the dose and the timing are the key aspects because caffeine has a half-life of three to five hours, meaning that our body takes three to five hours to eliminate half of the drug. So after this amount of time, caffeine will still be in our system. 
And actually, I'm sure that you heard people say not to drink caffeine in the late afternoon. And why is that? Because if we are going to have a cup of coffee, for example, at 3 p.m., caffeine will still circulate in our brain at midnight. So uh, I don't want to say that we shouldn't drink caffeine, particularly because of its positive effects in terms of mood or mental performance, for example. But it is, however, recommended to have our last cup of coffee 12 hours before going to bed. Moreover, caffeine will make your sleep more unstable, causing sleep fragmentation and waking up during the night. It might also increase your anxiety level But most importantly, caffeine can decrease the amount of deep, non-rapid eye movement sleep in our brain. And this can decrease it for about 20 to 40% per night. But what's the problem? The problem is that we are not aware of that. So what is going to happen is that even if you're someone that, for example, like me, can go asleep after having a cup of coffee, the next morning you will feel unrefreshed by your sleep because of this reduction in the amount of deep sleep. Brilliant. Thank you, Viviana. My next question is for Martina, and that is, how does hibernation differ from a normal sleep in some animals? So that's a brilliant question, and I always wondered that myself. It's, of course, easy to notice the similarities between hibernation and sleep. They're both states of you know, seemingly minimal activity, the animal is unresponsive and unconscious. On the other hand, we know that sleep occurs for short periods of time and very regularly, while hibernation takes longer and often occurs seasonally in the winter. Which, by the way, seems like a way to go if you're not a fan of cold. But is hibernation just a long form of sleep? Uh, the short answer is no. In fact, and I find this super fascinating, many animals periodically wake up from hibernation to catch up on some sleep. Because in an essence, hibernation is a state when metabolism slows down. And in fact, everything slows down. So the heart, the breath, but importantly, brain activity as well. Sleep is a very active state. Memory formation is just one of the functions of sleep that we tend to focus in our lab. And instead, energy conservation is the main reason why animals hibernate. And that's why hibernation is often more prevalent during winter, but it can also occur in response to food shortages. However, you know, extreme times require extreme measures. So when an animal hibernates, they can cool their bodies down by 5 to 10 degrees Celsius. Their heart rate drops to 1 to 3% of their original speed. And instead of breathing every about every second, you, they can go up to 10 to 20 minutes without taking a breath. All of which obviously save massive amounts of energy. And that, of course, doesn't happen during sleep, or at least not to such extremes. Sleep is also fairly easy to break out of, while hibernation isn't. So all in all, hibernation is not just long-term sleep. Although it appears similar to sleep at the first glance, it is a very special state that serves different functions and differs from sleep in a lot of ways. And if someone wonders, it's rather unlikely for the animal to dream during those long winter nights. Dreams tend to appear in REM sleep, which is rarely present during hibernation. However, some species that hibernate in warm environments seem to be an exception to that rule, but whether they dream or not is still a mystery. Brilliant. Thank you, Martina. My next question is another one for Viviana, and that is, when people say the term, just sleep on it after a row or an emotional experience, is there any truth in this? And does sleep really help you process emotions? So thank you for the question. Regarding the relationship between sleep and emotions or sleep and emotional memories, 
Recent findings suggest that sleeping after an emotional event is likely to attenuate the emotional component in the long term. And according to the sleep to forget, sleep to remember hypothesis that has been developed by Matthew Walker in 2009, it seems that sleep has an effect on how we re-experience emotions associated with an event. And in particular, it suggested that emotional memories get strengthened during sleep. And at the same time, the affective experience that is associated with the memory or the autonomic tone that is associated with it will gradually decrease over time. So overnight, we might sit to a decoupling between the memory itself and the emotional tone that is associated with it. Moreover, Walker hypothesized that this decoupling is likely to occur during rapid high movement sleep, a sleep stage that occurs later during the night. And why? Because of the unique neurochemical and neurophysiological characteristics of REM. So even though further studies are necessary to investigate the relationship between sleep and emotions, sleep and emotional memories, it seems that sleep has an effect over time, attenuating the affective tone of memories. My final question is to Penny, and that is, how much is sleep deprivation related to our immunity? Thanks, Bella. It's another great question. So it's a tricky question as well. We know that sleep is really important for the immune system. So we know that sleep boosts the immune system and you get stronger immune responses if you're sleeping well. But the question of exactly how that's working is something that's a topic of current research. The immune system has two kinds of responses. It has innate responses and learned responses. So we all know probably that, you know, leukocytes, those are white blood cells in the immune system, detect foreign pathogens that enter the body. And then they send out cytokines, which tell other white blood cells to prepare to attack those foreign bodies. And so the purpose of giving vaccines is to expose the body and those leukocytes to pathogens that we might experience at some point in our lives so that they are primed, so that they've learned and can then identify those and will be able to mount a faster, more effective attack when they actually need to. So you have a vaccine, you're given a small amount of this pathogen so that when you actually come across it in real time and you're in danger of a real infection, your body is ready, has learned it and can attack. And what there is some evidence that sleep helps the immune system to actually learn to identify these things. So just as sleep is important for learning in the brain, the kind of learning that we study in our lab, it seems like sleep is also important for learning in the immune system. And, and that is part of why there's a link between the effectiveness of vaccines and sleep, for instance. So we know that if, if people are vaccinated and they, then they don't get a good night of sleep, there's much reduced immune response to that vaccination and actually sometimes they need to be revaccinated and this is thought to be to do with this learning function of sleep for the immune system so there is a strong link it is a topic of current research and I think it's something that's very interesting Brilliant. Thank you, Penny. So that's the end of our questions for today. Thank you to everyone for your answers. And thank you to all of the listeners for sending in your questions. You've been listening to the Sleep Science Podcast with me, Penny Lewis, and members of the NAPS Sleep Research Team at Cardiff University in the UK. This Q&A session concludes our second series and was produced by Bella Mill-Smith. 
If you've enjoyed this show, please consider subscribing to the podcast or liking us on Twitter. Thanks for listening and please look out for season three of the Sleep Science Podcast, which will be starting in a few months. Bye.